The following is a special edition of Rick Flynn Presents. The inmate formerly known as 15G0717, Melissa Schoenfield, I promised you before we even began that we were going to treat this fairly. My question to you, ma'am, is were you treated fairly on Rick Flynn's show? Oh, you've been wonderful, and I appreciate that so much. Thank you. You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout-out from London Town, it's Rick Flynn Presents... Now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Hello, everyone, and welcome back in. If you joined us last week, we had a show that was absolutely unbeknownst to me. We had so much to talk about, which did not fit within the confines of our normal time slot, which is an hour per show. Lisa is with us today, everyone. I'm going to introduce her formally if you weren't with us last week. Her name is Melissa Schoenfield. She has written a book. The book is entitled The Melissa Schoenfield Story by the inmate formerly known as 15G0717. Bitter or better, the Melissa Schoenfield story by the inmate formerly known as 15G0717. This book is available right now on Amazon. It is available right now on Barnes & Noble. It is available on Kindle. And Lisa Schoenfield, welcome in. Say hello to our audience and thank you for sharing this portion of what was a tumultuous period in your life. I'm sure you'd rather forget, but I applaud you for the strength <laughs> of coming on. Absolutely. Say hello to everyone. Hello, everybody, and thank you for having me. All righty. Lisa, we talked last week about a relationship your daughter had. She became pregnant with a gentleman, and that is where it all went bad in the family's life. And I say the family because you didn't like what was going on there. You felt it was abusive to your daughter. You felt it was abusive to the child. Your husband at the time, the good doctor, he was a dentist, he didn't like it. You were pillars of the community. You were a good family. Your daughter had two master's degrees. Your son, he went and became a medical doctor himself. Your family valued education. You were a psychotherapist. You helped people who needed a calm, cool, and collected person to advise them. And that was you. You'd never been in trouble a day of your life. But anyway, something happened, and I imagine it was just a buildup, a buildup, and more and more. And the mountain got big, and as they say, the old straw broke the old camel's back. And Lord Almighty, what in the hell, Lisa? did you decide to do to solve this problem? 
I'm going to step out and you tell everybody. When did this come to your mindset, if you will, to where you had just been pushed over the edge? There had to be a moment. Now that you look back at it, you know there was a moment where you weren't acting in a normal fashion. When was that moment? Um, it would have been probably August of 2014. Uh, the course had said that if uh, the baby's father made four supervised visits over two years, he'd be able to take the baby by himself for a week. And in my mind, that was unfathomable. That was not going to happen. So he had come up for a weekend, and my daughter was generous enough to say that a visit would be the Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, which I thought was very generous. My husband at the time had arranged for the meeting to be at his office. And um, we had uh, employed uh, bodyguards, for lack of a better, better term, that were dressed as construction workers. So if, if he tried to take the baby or anything else, that, you know, at least we had that kind of security. And then we would have a friend who, uh, my grandson at least was familiar with sit with them so that it wasn't a stranger because essentially his his biological father was a stranger to him. The visits went, they were benign, really. There was nothing, uh, a whole lot of nothing to report. It was ridiculousness. Um, he asked what the baby eats for lunch, that he'd bring lunch. And it actually, he wasn't a baby. He was two years old at this point. And um, my daughter told him what he eats. And exactly what she didn't want a meeting is what he brought. He brought McDonald's, French fries, and Oreos. That was supposed to be lunch. And like I said, it's not that it was horrible. That's not horrible. But it's one thing after another. Um, he also brought the baby boxing gloves, which I don't know why a two-year-old would need boxing gloves, but okay. Um, that Sunday night, uh, he wasn't leaving until Monday night. On Sunday night, he asked my daughter if she would meet him for dinner. She said no. He became very uh, verbally abusive to her, and um, she hung up. I mean, that was it. He was uh, determined that he was taking this baby. He wasn't taking the baby anywhere. Um, he flew back on, a mo on Monday, and it was a, a week or two later that my daughter and the other uh, baby mama, who he has three children with, uh, they were they were looking into his Facebook account, and there was a another woman who had said she could not wait to come to Miami to marry him and raise all four of those children, especially the baby. So my daughter went and told her father, who then came and told me. And our feeling about this was that he had every intention of taking this baby. And whether he was going to keep the baby in Florida or bring the baby to Peru, the country where his family's from, and actually he was born in, we didn't know. I thought about it, and I did know somebody to help us. And it was someone who I had uh, figured out what the real diagnosis was, and it was not a mental health diagnosis. It was something that was physical, causing a mental um, uh, issue. It was just an appearance to what it looked like. So he was grateful and said, anything you ever need, you know, you ask me. And I thought, well, this would be something I need. So I called him. He was in another time zone. He had to call me back and I explained the situation and I wanted, I wanted him hurt so he couldn't hurt any other women or children. 
And um, he told me he couldn't help me and hung up. Ten minutes later, I received a text that said, I'm going to work on it. Uh, Give me some time. It was a few weeks later that um, I was uh, out of town and I received a phone call thinking it was uh, a man who wanted to make an appointment for me uh, professionally to come to my office when, in fact, it was someone who was there to help the situation. I told him I couldn't meet him for another two hours, just how long it would take for me to go home. It didn't occur to me that I did not tell him what car I was driving, but he knew what I was driving. Um, I went to the mall. This guy got into my car and um, he had me move my car because he was concerned about security. And in fact, he had me move my car so security could take better film and audio. Uh, he was an undercover police officer. And not a day goes by that I'm not grateful he was an undercover police officer. So nobody did get hurt. Um, we talked. I said to him, I, you know, want, I want him hurt so we can't hurt anybody. Scare him. Do, do something like that. He told me he didn't leave witnesses. And all I could think of, I was 57 years old. I had a great life. And I'm a witness. But if I'm going to die, I'm not dying in vain. I'm taking this guy with me. Um, when I say guy, I mean my grandson's father. And um, we agreed on on a, a, what he would do, a price. I looked at him and said, um, well, what are you going to do with the body? And unfortunately, my sense of humor tends to be a little, actually a lot sarcastic. And needless to say, was not necessary nor appreciated. And he looked at me and I said, it's going to be a Florida, throw it to the gator. And just that comment alone was enough to send me to prison. Um, we had worked at a time. My husband was supposed to be going to Florida for a conference. I didn't want him in Florida when this would happen. We, um, we had talked about telephones. Um, did my husband know what was going on? Who else knew? Um, finally, I told him when I'd be able to get him half the money. That's what he wanted. And um, it was, what, a week and a half, maybe two weeks later that I met him again. And I gave him half the money down. I met him in a Walmart parking lot. And uh, he told me the information I gave him with his home address was not accurate. And I said, well, that's the address he gave the court. It's the only address I had for him. And he showed me pictures telling me, you know, this is the social club he frequents. I said, honestly, I don't know. Um, he asked me if I was sure I wanted to do this. And I wasn't. But I went ahead. I gave him uh, money that my father had sent to my husband's office. And um, I stupidly said to him, that I wiped it down, so I didn't want to touch it. I gave it to him, and uh, he left my car. And I remember thinking, I can't do this. I can't hurt someone, let alone kill somebody. So I saw the car that he went in on. It was a green um, SUV, and I slowed up. I I think I even stopped behind his car, and then I thought, I'm still going to die. I'm a witness here. So I kept going. I left the Walmart parking lot. I made a uh, left at the traffic light. 
onto the main road. I was going to go uh, spend the weekend with a friend of mine uh, from Canada, and she was we were meeting in Rochester. And uh, these police car lights go on, and I was sure they were after someone else because I didn't run a red light or anything. And somehow or another, I wound up moving over into uh, the hotel parking lot and um, remember rolling my window down. And I had to be in shock because I don't remember being nervous at all. I asked the uh, female officer, why am I being pulled over? And she told me that they thought uh, a crime was about to be committed. Asked me to get out of the car where I was frisked and handcuffed and brought down to the police station. And um, I was arrested, arraigned, put into uh, county jail for four days until we were able to come up with enough money for my bond. And, um, you know, the rest was kind of history there, how I wound up serving 1,385 days in New York State Department of Corrections and Supervision. So you, as a psychotherapist, saw an individual and you, I'm going to assume you helped him, and he was pleased with what you had done to help him in his life with his problems. And he said to you, listen, thank you. If you need anything, let me know. Give me a call. And that's yeah, so, exactly what you do. You yeah. gave him a call? Yes, I did. Now, was there something yeah. about this guy that, that, did he look gruff? Did he did, did he have a criminal background? Was he violent? What about his demeanor was such to where you instantly would have trusted him to do the dirty deed? Um, he had worked in a government agency, <laughs> so I knew he knew what to do. Like, for example, like the CIA? Something like that? You something don't have like to that, say. Yeah. Something like that. Was this man a veteran, or don't you know? He was not a veteran. Okay. Did, uh, and and I know you can't get into what you and he talked about when you were advising him, but was there something that when he came to see you as a psychotherapist, something that led you to believe that he had taken another life prior before there were a lot of weapons that he needed to dispose of oh okay okay and that might have yeah. given you that gave you the impression this guy is not as clean as as what my average client is exactly <laughs> all right so exactly. you came to a deal when the phone rang you assumed that the party at the uh, on the other end was somebody that he had set up for the, the the deed. You agreed on a price over the phone of $11,000. And when you met him I, in the, am I right, 11000 It was 11000 Well, actually, it was 10000 plus 1000 for travel expense. But it was not over the phone we agreed to do that. It was actually in the car. All right. Well, how did you know how much to... Uh, bring with you to give him? I didn't bring any money with me. Um, we had agreed on a, I, I mean, how much does it cost to do this? I don't know. I've never done this before. 
So he says, to me, what, do, what do you want to pay? And I said, I, I don't know. He says, well, throw a number out there. I said, I don't know, $10,000? He says, well, okay, I'll, I'm doing my friend a favor. He says, and throw in 1000 for my travel expenses. No. And I said, are you flying? No, I'll be driving down. Like, oh, okay. So uh, when I saw him again, I uh, was when I gave him half the money and uh, that I was also arrested right afterwards. And this was in Watertown, New York? Yes. Right, which you have since moved out of. You're not there anymore. Correct. All right, very well. I'm not. So I heard you say that after you presented him with the money and got pulled over, you didn't think there was anything wrong. You thought the reason you got pulled over is they were looking for someone else. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't do anything wrong. It's like nobody knew what I was doing with um, this, this guy. How could, how could anybody know what was happening? So I, I was sure that, you know, maybe they thought I ran a light. I didn't run a light. I, I know I stopped at the, you know, waited for the light to turn green. I had no idea the magnitude of what this was. That's how desperate I was, that I had no idea how bad this was. I know the difference between right and wrong. I know trying to take someone's life is just unthinkable. But when I say I didn't understand the magnitude, I had no idea that the entire police department was following this. And and this was a major takedown. Right, because it, well, it's a felony. It's a felony arrest, certainly. Yeah. And and for yeah. all they knew, you could have been armed yourself, and they knew you were emotionally yeah. and or mentally unstable at that moment. Anything yeah. could have happened. That's right. That's right. So they were taking no chances. They weren't going to fool around with you. Not at all. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. When you handed over. $5,500 in cash as half of what you owed. You owed 10000 for the deed and another 1000 for travel expenses to get him from New York to Florida. You handed over $5,500. Did, did you breathe and go, oh, finally, I'm glad this is over. And did you think you were on your way to a uh, solving the disorder, or did you say, oh, crap, I should not have done any of this? How did you feel at the time the money left your hands? Uh, very conflicted. I I knew that this, this can't go on like this, but I also knew that I can't take somebody's life either. Well, what do I do? I'm in this quandary. This guy, I he told me he doesn't leave witnesses, so... I'm getting killed here is really what I thought somewhere down the road. And, and what do I do? How do I stop this? I can't just say, Oh no, I'm not going to go through with this because I truly thought in that moment, I'm going to die also. Right. Okay. Now, was there any semblance of your character at that moment that said, well, I know this is wrong, but this is going to solve all my problems. Uh, in a way, I'm glad I did this because uh, we're going to get rid of this character. I'm never going to deal with him again. My marriage will be better because my husband doesn't like what's going on. It's ruining his life. It's ruining my life. My daughter doesn't like what's going on. It's ruining her life. 
and I've got a, a baby, a two-year-old baby. It's going to seriously affect that child, and I don't want that to happen either. Was there any good that came over you at the time you got rid of the money and said, well, you know, thank God I found somebody to do it. Did you have any any thoughts that that you were doing even anywhere close to the right thing, or did you know the whole time it was a it was a bad bad situation? I think yes to everything you just said. I knew it was wrong. I knew something had to get done. I knew it couldn't keep going like this. I knew it shouldn't be going like this. And I think when I I slowed up to, and I stopped behind uh, the uh, the police detective's vehicle because I didn't know it was the police detective at the time, to say, wait a minute, I can't go through with this. I think that was my moment of clarity. Also, I was not sleeping at night anymore. I was having horrible nightmares. I didn't want to go to sleep. Um, I was dealing with a lot of physical pain. I had a, I had 13 spinal surgeries, so I was dealing with the pain of that. I was also dealing with a marriage that was crumbling, and I was convinced that if I showed my husband Look at how loyal I am, that I'm taking care of this. And I thought in some way he would pick me and not everything else that he was doing and looking at. So it it was like the perfect storm collided. There was no right answer anymore. What What I was doing, yes, it was wrong, but I didn't know how to get out of it either. And it's easy to say, just don't do it. It's not that simple when... You know, you're being told, I don't leave witnesses. You're a witness. Um, you know, I've got, it, it just, it, everything collided all at once. Now, Monday morning quarterback, the marriage to the good doctor. That's your husband. He's a dentist. 37 years of your life, you were married yeah. to this medical doctor. Now that you're quarterbacking the game on Monday, will you tell me, that the reason this marriage did not work out had nothing to do with the baby's daddy of your, both your and his daughter, but there were other issues that caused it to go bad. Or do you attribute this situation to the reason you're not married to the dentist anymore? Talk to me about that very briefly. This situation was the candles lit on the birthday cake. There was already too much going on where there was other women that he was um, courting. There you go. That's what I thought. I didn't know that, but I figured that there's something else going on, and it was not this boyfriend of your daughter that caused your marriage to go bad. Your marriage would have went bad either way. The man could have been the, the finest guy in the world to the baby, an exemplary boyfriend who your husband, who your daughter would have loved to uh, marry, but still that marriage would not have worked, right? Correct. There we go. Okay. Finally. So they get you into court and a year later in 2015, you pled guilty to second degree attempted murder. And you were sentenced yes. to what? Well, originally it was first degree attempted murder with first degree solicitation and first degree conspiracy. 
Uh, my lawyer got the conspiracy and solicitation knocked out and got it down to second degree attempted murder. The DA said, don't even ask me for anything less. I kind of felt like I was being, um, I, I was being showcased for her. Uh, she was retiring shortly thereafter. Um, I, uh, I had an ankle cuff put on me New Year's Eve. Um, I felt like a wild animal. I had considered walking into the frozen lake for suicide, except that I knew I would die guilty and my grandson would grow up knowing that his grandmother tried to take his father's life without any explanation and killed herself. So that stopped being an option. Um, on um, June 16th, I surrendered my professional license to the state and I accepted my plea, which was five uh, years in prison and five years parole. Um, I, the, the five years prison turns into you get uh, good time taken off. And then if you work either two years in certain jobs in prison or take 24 college credits, you get another six months off. So uh, because I had a master's degree, they would not let me take college credits. So I wound up working for two years um, as a uh, IPA, which is an inmate prison assistant in the school building. So I, I helped women who had um, not more than a middle school uh, school career uh, take GED classes. And I wound up getting another six months off. So I wound up serving three years, nine months, and 14 days. I wound up with the minimum, the very minimum sentence for um, second-degree attempted murder. But you could have gotten the maximum, which was 25 years. Yeah. How in the world yeah. did you end up at a five-year sentence instead of the max 25? Was this a gift that was given to you by the judge? Or did the judge say, yeah. well, nobody got hurt here. We caught it in time, so we're not going to give you the max. What I want to know, Lisa, why did she not give you the max? Did did she play golf on Saturdays with your attorney? Or what was going on there? Why was it not the 25 years? Well, we were, I had two lawyers to begin with. And um, we were all sitting in judges' chambers. And uh, the assistant DA was there. And then he was asking for the max sentence. The judge overrode everything and said five years. My lawyers run out of the chambers. And I'm left sitting there. And I'm beside myself because I hear that I'm getting five years prison time. And then uh, one of the lawyers came in and grabbed me, pulled me out. And um, she said, you were just given a gift by the judge. So apparently he knew my character and that um, I was in the business of helping people, not hurting people. And then I just got caught up in something that, that there was no way out of. The police are supposed to serve and protect. They didn't serve or protect the situation. They pushed it along. And when the phone call was made to them by the guy I was asking for help, basically, he was told, see how far she'll go. And clearly, I went way too far out there. But instead of helping me, all they had to do was knock on the door and say, what is going on? That you know, And they knew what was going on because we were calling periodically that, you know, he keeps harassing. He won't. Stop. Um, you know, we, we had hired, like I said, we had to have 
uh, bodyguards. When we had gone to Florida on a, a conference, we had to go with a bodyguard because the baby was going with us. And he wasn't a new, considered a New York State resident yet. So they were aware what was happening, but nobody was helping. And I think the judge just realized that I, I'm really not a dangerous person. What I did, you know, thinking in that line was, was horrible. It was heinous. But um, I think he, he knew what my character was and knew that, um, you know, 25 years, it's not going to do anything to help me. I'm going to come out in a body bag, if anything. Um, and there were people who said I probably should have come out in a body bag. Uh, but I'm also going to say that when um, someone is punished with prison, I don't think someone incarcerated should spend the rest of their life paying that price for something they did. Few people are truly of criminal mind. They make huge mistakes, but it doesn't mean it's their character. I am not, um, what I did was criminal. I am not um, of criminal character. And that comment that you made because of your, your sense of humor, ah, throw him to the gators. That later came back to bite you in the rear end, didn't it, the whole time. That was probably on every news story, every account. They used that as a catchphrase to refer to your trial. Is, oh, is that true? Uh, Alligator Granny, the local DJ, uh, oh. even gave me my own song. Alligator yeah. Granny. Is that a record? Wait a minute. Yeah, I'm a DJ. Yeah, I've know. never played anything. I've never played any Alligator yeah, Granny. Who did that? Do you know? Jay Donovan. Oh, I don't I don't even know Jay Donovan. Oh my my. Water. Jerry Water. Reed had was, one about um where uh where what? He only had one arm because that's all he had left because the alligator bit it. Remember that? That was Jerry Reed, and I'm trying to think of the name the name of the uh, the song. But yeah, that's the only thing I remember. This alligator granny. Alligator Granny was the name yeah. of a record, a single? Um, I don't even know if it was a real song or not. I did my best to kind of laugh while people would say it, but I really cried behind closed doors. No, oh, I believe so that. So I, I could not yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was rough. Um, oh. The day I was arrested was Halloween, and I didn't get my phone call home till the next morning. And, of course, I called my husband, and I, I said to him, um, please tell me that this didn't make the newspaper or the six o'clock news. And there was a very pregnant pause. And he said it made international news. Oh, no. And that's when I got there. Oh, yeah. my. And, and by this time, you were, you were in, in custody. Uh, you called him when they allowed you to make a phone call. Right. Which was uh, 24 hours later. Yeah. Oh, Lord almighty. Yeah. And your daughter said, and I quote, <clears throat> she thought with her heart and trusted the wrong people. And I'm yes. thinking about that. Yes. She thought with her heart, I'll go along with that, but trusted the wrong people kind of makes me think that your daughter's saying, you know, maybe she'd have chose somebody else to do it. We wouldn't be in this mess we're in. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? Is there something wrong with right. the end of that uh, quote? Help help me out here. What am I missing about your daughter? I've never met or talked her to her. And I think her intention was 
trusting the wrong people in that nobody should have let me do this. It should have been, what are you thinking? Are you out of your mind that anyone who cared about me would have stopped me? Oh, so in other words, when you talk to your former client, he should have said, Lisa, uh uh-uh, I'm not going to let you do this. What's the matter with you? Come on. I'm coming over there, or we're going to meet for lunch, and I'm going to tell you 150 reasons why you're making a serious mistake. And instead, he hung up the phone. Immediately, he must have called the cops, and and then that's what set this whole thing in motion. Well, and it never occurred to anybody to call my husband either to say, what is going on in your household? They, oh, they yeah. never tried to stop any or ask a question. And unfortunately, my daughter found out I was arrested through Facebook. Now, through social media. Yeah. Now, what is yeah. this about? Didn't didn't the guy who was doing the deed, your former client, didn't he start messaging you on Facebook trying to communicate with you about this as well? Didn't you take IMs, yeah. instant messages from him? And if so, what yeah. were they about? I'll meet you tomorrow, this type of thing. No, no. He was telling me, I'm working on your problem. Someone will get in touch with you soon, but I'm working on it. And he tried to keep me, you know, apprised of what was going on. But I... um believe that it was the police telling him just string her along uh we're you know gathering evidence what have you and you know we'll we'll take it from here but um i never spoke with him again after that and like i said the police the only contact i had was with this detective who was acting as a hitman right thank god he wasn't at the time the trial occurred you were 58 years old would that be true 57. 57. Okay. When I was arrested, I was 57. And then by the time I I accepted the plea, I was 58. The prison where they sent you, was this a federal prison? Was this a state prison? New York State. New York State. First, I, um, yeah. So I was first in the maximum facility. There's only three state prisons for women in New York. So I was in the maximum facility, which was Bedford Hills for nine weeks. So they figured out where to send me. And then I wound up directly across the street at the minimum medium, uh, which is Taconic. And that's where I spent the rest of my stay. Is this one of these prisons that's a country club? Was there swimming pools and putting greens? Or was this no country club? This was no country club I've ever been to. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Bedford Hills, they say that you go to reception there. And, you know, (laughs) reception kind of sounds like you're going someplace dressed up with... uh, you know, little tea sandwiches and some kind of uh, alcoholic beverage. And I got to tell you, it was nothing like that. Uh, you get off the bus, um, you're unshackled, and you have correction officers screaming at you, um, telling you what you're doing, how you're doing it, where you're going to do it. Um, you're fitted for your clothing, you know, your uniform. And it is um, worse than any movie can make it. And I'm not sure there are words to describe the feelings, even though um, I wrote my journal every day with the hopes of never forgetting and trying to explain to someone else what it was like. Um, It is uh, dehumanizing. It's isolating. It is so depressing. And it is stifling. That's the only way I can describe it. Right. They strip search you. They strip search you. You bent down and you had to cough. Uh, you have to bend over. And uh, I had one officer who told me she wanted to see pink. 
Oh and my! It's like, are you for real? Oh yeah, it was. Um, it was bad. After every uh, every medical visit, anytime you leave the facility, you're strip searched. When you have a visit, after the visit, you're strip searched. Um, and no orifice is off limits. You know, it's whatever they want. And it's um, it's disgusting. And like I said, it's humiliating. You reach a point where you just don't care anymore. And that's pretty sad that you lose all sense of modesty. You don't have a choice. Not easy. Did as part of your incarceration and the judge's order to have you taken there was part of the sentence, if you will, that you will be looked at and examined by a psychiatrist. Uh, it's part of everybody's um, adventure. You have to go through um, a physical, you go through a psychiatric eval, you go through um, occupational uh, counseling, you go for um, I forgot what it's called, but uh, they they test you uh, for your education level. Um, What else do they do to you? Um, Actually, they do anything you want. Um, You go through a whole bunch there, but it levels the playing field where you even speak to a sergeant who asks you of tattoos and what do they mean? Where are they? Uh, They want to know what piercings you have. I know they took my wedding band from me and wouldn't give it back to me for, uh, I think it was seven or eight weeks. And technically, you shouldn't have to give them your wedding band. You're allowed to keep your wedding band, but they did take mine from me for a while. Um, it's uh, it's very um, humbling, the experience, for lack of a better word. Why did they want the wedding band? And if for fear that somebody might want to steal it from you or just no, to intimidate you? I think a lot of what they do is intimidation and to show you that um, you're nothing special that um, you have hit rock bottom. You have no, um, you have no nothing unless they want you. Okay. What did the medical doctor that examined this lady whose husband is a doctor, whose children both have masters, daughter with two masters, you have a master's degree, you're educated, you've never been in trouble a day of your life. What was the diagnosis? Did they say, ma'am, you have a a nervous breakdown. Ma'am, you have this, that, or the other. What did they attribute you hiring this hitman to do with your medical condition? What did they call it? Believe it or not, they didn't call it anything. The the um, counselor looked at me and said, do you think you're depressed? And I looked and said, well, I, I'm incarcerated. I, I'm kind of guessing so. He said, do you think you're dangerous? And I said, well, I'm going to say that the court must have thought so, because that's why I've been removed from society and in prison. Um, you know, it was ridiculous questions. Once I got to Taconic, um, I actually had a uh, another social worker who was also a counselor. I would see her, uh, well, actually, as often as I wanted, but I would see her probably every two to four weeks. Um, the psychiatrist, I decided that I wanted to go on an antidepressant because I knew you can't stay in prison and not be depressed. So I, I did ask for an antidepressant when I was there. So I had to put a, I had to drop a slip to see the psychiatrist to get evaluated. And then I was put on something, but yeah. So it's, um, they assumed because of my profession that they gave me credit for at least knowing what I needed, you know, when I would ask for it. You had to drop a slip 
to get an antidepressant. Does that mean you had to fill out a written yes. form? Yes. Yeah. Sick cough slip. And they they yeah. complied. Did they give you what you asked for? Yeah, it took uh, about three weeks, four weeks to actually get seen. Uh, medical is run the same way. You have to drop a sick cough slip, and you're seen. You know, you're you're seen by a nurse within oh, anywhere from two to five days, and then they'll make an appointment for you to be seen by the doctor. So unless it's an emergency, you're not going to be seen right away and you still have to fight for whatever you need medically because it's uh, most of it's pretty superficial. We've all seen prison cells in the photos on TV. They're those little, little six by eight closets where you're in there and the yep. bathroom comes out of the wall and the bed is made of cast iron or whatever in the world it is. You were not in that type of situation. You actually were in a dormitory where it was a partition situation that had, what, 36, 35 different beds in it. Describe it, because you were not in what is called a prison cell. Is that fair to say? Well, uh, no, I was tore up. Well, I'll explain. When I first went to Bedford reception, you were with 36 women with the half walls. It almost looks like orange is the new black is what it looks like. And then you graduate to a dormitory with the same, you know, half walls, but there's bunk beds in there as well. And there are 76 women. Then when they figure out where to put you, you're either left in Bedford Hills and you're put into a, 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 a either another dorm or you graduate into a cell with usually um, a cellmate, a bunkie. Or uh, eventually you can wind up with something by yourself. Or they send you to Albion or to uh, Taconic. I was there nine weeks before I went to Taconic. Taconic, you start out in your own cell. Uh, within like three days, you graduate to something I refer to as the shelter, where there's 15 beds and no partition. And it's, um, it's very intimidating. Uh, as rooms get available, you wind up either in a three-person room or a two-person room, and you're only there for like a week or two. And then as soon as an empty cell is available, you have a room by yourself. And I call it a room because there's no bars on the, the doors. It's a regular door with a, a metal door with a little window in it. Um, there's no real bar over the windows that, when I say that there are bars, but it's it's not bars. It's a a crisscross type pattern. So it's not as ugly as it could be, but, um, I had my own, uh, room slash cell for, uh, the majority of the duration I was in Taconic. With these women and all these bunk beds out there, how are you using the restroom? You would ask permission to go. And they would walk you down the yeah. hall to do it? Or was it right there in, in another room which they would unlock? Or how did that go? There's no locked door uh, except for in the, um, you know, the stalls, you know, where the toilets are. But you have sinks and showers. Um and you ask permission to go, you're allowed to go in. At night, um, I think they only allow like one person or maybe, I don't know, two people to go um, as they need to. So you actually have to wait you know, with the, the uh, correctional officer. But you do go by yourself when you, you go in. They, they don't join you in there. All right. And, but yet there's no way you can lock the door behind you. Only in the uh, toilet area. In the stall area. Right. Okay. The showers are not locked. 
All right. Now, Hours are not locked away. You're, you're a good Jewish grandma, and you were allowed <laughs> to have, I say that because you were allowed to actually have kosher diet, and they allowed that. Well, it's and tell me about well, why, if you're on a kosher diet, do they allow you to leave the dining area and bring food back to your uh, where you stay, your living quarters, if you will? And I want to know if the fact that you were attacked when you did that had anything to do with the fact that whoever attacked you wanted that food that you were carrying, or, or is that unrelated? Talk to me about that. That would be unrelated. But what I figured out, prison food is horrible. It's worse than school lunches. And I learned very early on to ask for a kosher diet because it would mean I could have um, instant oatmeal, the oatmeal packets, and they give you hot water uh, for breakfast with fresh fruit. Lunch, I would have tuna fish, um, you know, out of a can. Uh, it was a can. It was a pouch. Um, I could get uh, also fresh fruit. Dinner was still disgusting. It was like a uh, TV dinner, but it was still better than what the prison food was. So in Bedford Hills, you sit at these long tables, like what you see in the movies with the little stool. So there is no place for the people who are on um, religious diets to eat. So they would allow you to bring your tray back to wherever you, you were housed. And in my case, at Bedford Hills, I was still in the dorm. So I would bring my food back there. And um, this one day, I was in, what, seven weeks at the time, seven or eight weeks. Um, my, I was still married at the time, and he was trying to get me my meds that I was promised I would have all along. And I didn't. So I was in awful pain. Um, I was also going through withdrawal because you can't just stop these meds. And he threatened the um, superintendent of the prison and someone else high up in docks. I believe it was the, um, the commissioner. He also threatened there uh, that if I didn't have my meds by whatever time that day, he was going to come in with the media. And uh, I got my meds. But um, <laughs> the next day I uh, had brought my food, you know, lunchtime back and there was no one on our side of the dorm. I don't know if anybody was in the other side. And so I thought my bunkie came back. I had the lower bunkie at the top bunk. And I um, wound up getting slammed into the metal bed and the ladder. So it was uh, the metal bed, then the ladder, then the top of the metal bed again. So I wound up with um, a huge egg-shaped contusion on top of my forehead, collapsed nose, and three teeth missing. If you don't report an injury, you will go to lock. So I had to look and think, what am I going to say? Because if I tell them the truth, retaliation could be worse. So I decided all I was going to say was I hit my head on the bed, which wasn't a lie. I did. So I went to medical. They um, recorded it. They did nothing else for me. The, uh, I dropped a sick call slip to the dentist. I dropped eight sick call slips. The dentist never saw me. Um, what would have been the ninth sick call slip, I wound up being moved to Taconic. The day I dropped the sick call slip, the following day, the dentist at Taconic saw me, and she attempted to fix what she could in my mouth. Who was it that attacked you, and why? I thought it was another inmate. I did not put everything together. There was a um, man 
standing outside with a white shirt, which means he was either a sergeant, a captain, a lieutenant, whatever. I didn't know what people wore, except if you wore blue, I knew you were a, a correction officer versus anything else was something higher than that. Um, it was retaliation for my husband threatening the uh, authorities there. He said, In if you words, don't give my wife her meds, I'll be here tomorrow with the media. Yep, pretty much. Oh, and so, so was, you got slammed. It was an employee of the state who threw you up against the metal bed. And what it, what happened? Did you lose three teeth or what happened there? I had three teeth knocked out um, oh on the, uh, the ladder. Did they ever well, discipline this lad? Know. Was it a male or female? I never, it was a female who did it. It was a man who was watching. Oh. But the problem was, but it was an inmate. A year and a half later, I wound up telling my brother what happened. And my brother wound up calling the state police who called the watch commander. The watch commander called the sergeant and the sergeant called me down to medical where I was strip searched and photographed again for bruises to see if I was fighting when I wasn't fighting. But that's what they had to do because my brother said that I was in a fight. That was a year and a half before. And then I started to put two and two together. Um, Three days later, someone from um, Albany, uh, from Department of Corrections, came down along with a police detective, um, and the police detective asked me if I wanted her to find who did this to me. And I said, how are you going to find the inmate who did it? Because why do you think it's an inmate? Anybody can go down to, to um, the, uh, oh, I can't think of what it's called, the clothing shop, and I'll get a uniform. She says, I think you were purposely targeted by an employee, and um, I can find out who it is, what cameras, and eliminate. I said, but there are no cameras in the dorm. She says, but I can see who went in and out. The problem and why I said no to this, Bedford Hills is directly across the driveway from Taconic. So periodically, they exchange uh, correction officers if they need help. Um, you have inmates going back and forth all the time with medical or just being transferred. And if I don't know who did this to me, I'm setting myself up for more retaliation. So I looked at this detective and I said to her, um, don't get mad, don't get even write a book. And she smiled. She said, you have one month before the statute of limitations is up for me to check this out. And I, I looked and I said, thank you. And I just decided I can't be looking over my shoulder like this all the time. I can't, I don't know who did this to me. So I, I let it go. Instead, I wrote about it. All right. Well, yeah, we're going to tell everybody once again about your book, and we're going to get into that. I'm going to make sure everybody knows what the book is and where to obtain it. But do you believe, A, the fact that you were a doctor's wife and you had a master's degree, you were an educated woman, your doctor's husband was a pillar of the community, your your husband, the doctor, obviously a pillar of the community. You'd never been in trouble before. You had a clean record up to your arrest. So you're a doctor's wife, you're the pillar of the community, you're an educated woman who not only is educated, but you used your education as a psychotherapist to help others with their problems. So now all of a sudden you're in this conundrum, if you want to call it that, and I'll clean up what it is because it's not a very good situation. 
but nobody was hurt, thank God, in the whole fiasco. Nobody lost their life or was injured. That probably, excuse my French, but that probably saved your ass. Is if you want my my opinion on it, nobody was hurt. You were a lady who had a clean record, and just as importantly as those other two, you showed remorse before the court. Did you not? Not only did I show remorse, I told the whole story and what I did before my Miranda rights were read, because I wanted them to know. This is what I did and why I did it. And you people didn't do your job in trying to keep any of my family safe. And I, um, I, I knew I, what I was doing before I, I didn't let them read, read my rights. And I, I could have done something about that I didn't. I didn't waste anybody's time. I didn't waste taxpayers' money. It's like, I am guilty. This is what I did. Um, the thing that I also need to say is the other... Uh, the other baby mama who has the three children, my grandson's half-siblings, her husband also went after the same man, only he had a gun. And the gun did go off and graze my grandson's father's head. And um, because it happened in Florida, he got five years probation. Needless to say, they were shocked that I didn't hold the weapon and nobody got hurt. And I got five years in prison. Mm-mm-mm. I don't know the extent of your religious involvement in life, and frankly, it's none of my business. But do you think that perhaps there was an angel up above your head that said, I am with my wayward daughter down here, and we're going to make sure she gets the help that she needs because she's showing remorse, nobody got hurt, and she's helped the community and helped. You helped when you were in prison. You helped them pass. Didn't you help inmates with their GED, and and you worked in the, yeah. in, in the school, if you will, of the prison. What did you do to help the inmates when you were there? Very quickly. I did work uh, three hours each morning in the school building with women who needed a GED as part of uh, the requirement for them to get out of prison early. But I took it a step further that I, um, I'd also taught college for seven years, you know, on the outside. And I would help students who were taking college courses, I would help edit their papers. And it also gave me back a few lost IQ points. And I would help um, the non-English speaking people where English was their first language, um, how to uh, write an essay, read and take the GET test. So I felt that because of my education, I kind of owed it to help somebody else pass through. and I didn't charge for it. You know, a lot of women charge for anything they do. And I, I wouldn't charge to help somebody. If somebody wanted to better themselves, who am I to, you know, accept any kind of payment for that? So I, I, the reward for me was just knowing they did well and maybe they'd get out early. No one should have to stay a, an extra minute in prison if they don't have to. Very well. I promised you before we even began that we were going to, treat this fairly. And uh, I apologize. I'm not Dr. Oz. I'm not going to run for Senate. I'm too honest for that. I don't want thrown in the toilet. I'm going to let him deal with all of that. 
But my question to you, ma'am, is were you treated fairly on Rick Flynn's show? Oh, you've been wonderful, and I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, her name is Melissa Schoenfield. Melissa, M-E-L-I-S-A, Schoenfield. She has written a book. Go out and get it. You can get it today on Amazon. You can, if you're the Kindle user, you can put it on the Kindle. It's 142 pages. How long does it take, Lisa, to read 142 pages? What Can you do that in a couple days? Uh, are there people reading it in a day? Roughly how long? That's not a lot of pages. No, it isn't, because uh, you have legal documents in there as well. So you can knock it out in a day if you're determined. There you go. Ladies and gentlemen, the name of that book is called Bitter or Better, the Melissa Schoenfield story by the inmate formerly known as 15G0717. Bitter or Better, the Melissa Schoenfield story by the inmate formerly known as 15G0717. It's published by Dorrance Publishing Company. It came out on May 13th, 2022. So May, June, July, August, it's only been out four months. We're kind of uh, new to the game. We're getting people to know about the book very shortly after it was released. Are people telling you that they're enjoying it? Or what are you hearing from the publishers or anybody? Has the book helped anybody that you know of? Yes. um, Most people tell me Wow, it it made them angry, made them laugh, made them cry, made them understand that this could happen to anyone. There are a few uh, people who think they know me based on what happened and are, um, you know, dead set against anything about me. And, you know, that's okay. They're entitled to their opinion. I think unless you have been in a situation where there's been, um, some kind of violence or some kind of abuse, or maybe even you're the one who's playing mama bear, you don't understand what it's like to go through this. And it's easy to say, well, I would never consider doing this. And I know before I ever, you know, my daughter ever had this baby, I, that's something I ever would have, I couldn't have conceived this in my wildest dreams. So it could happen to anybody if you're pushed in the right way. Uh, The naysayers, I, I hope, you know, maybe I can just at least open their eyes and understand that my goal here isn't just to sell books. It's also to help facilitate prison reform by telling the stories of the women who were there. Because I truly believe you can't just punish somebody based on a crime. You need to know what got them to the crime. And that's where prison reform needs to happen. So I have to keep telling the stories of the women who I was housed with and who I got to know. And I never would have gotten to meet any other way except in prison. So that's there- were women, were there women at the prison that you befriended that you knew who weren't as lucky as you? There was a deceased body as a result of their crime. You've got to admit that's probably yeah. going to happen. Uh, there were many of them like that. Many of them, not and, just um, one I or two. Correct. Oh. And I go so far to say, yeah. You were uh, lucky. Most of the women who, yes, I was. But most of the women in prison are there because of some abusive situation and nobody helped them. So they helped themselves and it went too far. Well, let me tell you something.
something. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart, Lisa. What can I say other than the fact that you had a forum here which gave you time to put this out on the table that the six o'clock news is not going to do in a half hour? They have news, weather, sports, international news, national news, and then the local news. Nobody has time for anything. On these podcasts, we can get it done and do it the right way, which I sure as the hell hope that we've done tonight because I've given you enough time to where people are going to understand until you walk a mile in my shoes, don't judge me. And you know what, Lisa, hey, ain't nobody walked in your shoes but you. Are you a better person now that you've at least learned something throughout all this? Or do you wish you could take the Etch-A-Sketch and turn it down, uh, upside down and shake it, and there was just nothing there? If you had your way, would you erase this totally and do it again? Or has this done any good for you, dear, at all? Anything? When I say this, it's going to sound bizarre, but prison wasn't all bad. The things that I learned, I never would have learned anywhere else about people who who have not lived a life like I've lived. And and I'm the first one to say, I worked hard for everything I have, but it was still a privileged, privileged life. I, um, I've become very humble. I do not engage in most confrontation. And I think I'm a much better friend, grandma, aunt, cousin, sister, mother. I think I'm much better in all those areas because you you change the way you view life. It's a lot more precious than anybody realizes. Um, I'm blessed in many ways, and prison taught me a lot about myself. It was a healing time for me, and I uh, thank God for Taconic because I had my own room by myself. I was able to write and draw and find me again, and as much as I didn't want the divorce, it was the best gift I've ever received because it allowed me to move forward. And you created a journal when you were there, and that journal became the basis of your book, right? Right. I uh, journaled every day, and I sent the letters uh, home and to my daughter. And um, then I had uh, the, the forward, who was by Elizabeth Shepard. She helped me pick what daily journal entries to use because I was in 40 different directions. So it's, the book itself is a little fractured for that reason in that in order to follow any kind of linear pattern, we had to pull out anything in between. So it's not the full journal. It would have looked like Encyclopedia Britannica otherwise. But um, it's, uh, you know, we made it short and concise just so that, um, you know, people could understand the process of how you go from being so angry and bitter to finding the better parts of yourself. Lisa, before we get out of here, if somebody wants to get a hold of you, are they allowed to get a hold of you? Will you permit that? And if so, what is the address? Certainly. They can email me at M, like in my first name, R, and my last name, S-C-H-O-N-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. And I answer all my emails. So be kind if you email me. Right. Haters walk the way, you know, what is that Aerosmith song? (laughs) Walk this way. Yeah. If you're a hater, you walk that way over there. And if you're going to come into this woman's life, try to be, you know, for goodness sake, will you treat the lady with respect? She's been through enough for heaven's sake. Give the email again. (laughs) Give that email again. Lisa. M R S C H O N. 
F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. There we go. Very well. It's 1.07 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Ladies and gentlemen, Lisa has an appointment at 2 p.m. Thank you for each and everything that you've done to pour your heart out in this show. You're listening today, ladies and gentlemen, to part two of our two-part series with Lisa Schoenfield. The book, once again, go out and get it. Bitter or better, the Melissa Schoenfield story by the inmate formerly known as 15G0717. This is Rick Flynn speaking on behalf of myself and our special guest for the last two weeks in a row, Lisa Schoenfield. Thank you for being with us. Thank you worldwide for all of those people who have sent in letters, cards, etc., etc., saying, we appreciate what you're doing, Rick. Thank you for the entertainment. We're learning. We're laughing. We're doing what we got to do. Well, I can only do so much myself. It takes interesting people to complete the occasion. And for God's sake, Lisa, ain't nobody going to say you're boring. I'm going to say that for you right now. Oh, my. Oh, my. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a great day. We'll see you next Wednesday with another brand new show. Good night. Rick, thank you so much for having me last week and this week. It was a pleasure, and thank you for letting me tell my story. Good night, everybody. The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking. You're super, and I'm so glad I got to meet you.